Who in here hates asking for help? Yeah, quite a few of us. We, I, I love being able to do things for myself. And I know a lot of us do. Uh, I, and there are things that I'm so glad I'm able to do that a lot of people, like I can fix my own car a, a lot of the times. If it has a problem, I can, you know, I've changed the brakes and changed the oil. Al, you like fixing your own cars. It's nice, to, and it's not only nice to be able to do it yourself, but it's also nice to be able to not have to pay a mechanic to do it. And, uh, or fixing a computer or a t- our TV at home. It blew a, a circuit. And, you know, these days, televisions are disposable. Like, what are you going to do? You can pay to have it fixed. It costs just as much to have it fixed as to buy a new one. So I didn't know what to do. And I got on, online and I looked up some information. And I found that it was possibly a capacitor. And so I ordered a capacitor. And, I, and like, there's things that you can do that... I love YouTube for the how-to videos, the things you can find. So our TV's working again. And I didn't have to buy a new one. And, and so being able to fix stuff like that or you know, even shoveling the snow off your drive or mowing your lawn, things that you, know, you might not like the work, but you're glad that you can do it for yourself. And uh, my, my, uh, my recliner at home, has, it's older than, our, than my marriage. And it has broken a number of times. And it's barely holding together. I've had to get in there and screw, you know, get pieces of wood and find scrap metal in the, in the garage to try to, to, you know, it's chewing gum and bailing wire. But rather than go out and buy, a, you know, find the money to buy a new chair, I've, I've pieced that thing back together over and over again. And I'm, and I'm glad, I'm grateful for that they'll be able to do it. Um, and I've been told by someone in our church, I won't tell you who, that it's a good morning any time that you can wake up and take yourself to the bathroom. And so I thank God that I'm able to get up, because I know some people aren't. And you know, sometimes you, you get sick or, or disabled or whatever, and you lose that ability. And it's nice to be able to do things for yourself. And I'm so grateful for that. And it can be hard to ask for help. It's hard enough sometimes to ask for help to admit, I can't do this all by myself. But it's even worse when you have to ask the person for help that you least want to ask for help. Right? And we've been in that situation before too. And, you know, when you tell somebody, I can do it myself, especially if it's your, your spouse, and then you realize you can't, and you say, honey, I can't do this. I need your help. And um, that happens in Matthew. And uh, in, in our reading for the day, uh, it says, as Jesus was teaching, and remember, we've, we've been going through what he's been doing, and it says, as he was saying these things, it's Matthew 19. At verse 18, it says, A ruler came and bowed low before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus and his disciples got up and followed him. Now this was the leader. In here it just says ruler. In Luke it tells us he was the ruler of a synagogue. So he's a religious leader. um, And who are the people that we've so far learned are the most threatened by Jesus? The religious leaders. So he's a synagogue leader, and he's part of this group of people that, you know, here comes this upstart guy who's got a huge following. And so the religious rulers are kind of against Jesus, think he's, he's you know, not, not doing any good. And so these are the ones who have been trying to trick him or trip him up and catch him doing something wrong all along the way. Now, I don't, it doesn't say personally whether this guy, his name... Matthew doesn't give us his name, but Luke tells us it's Jairus is his name. You know, we, we don't know 
personally if he was against Jesus in the beginning, but he was in that group, and so I'm just making some assumptions here. But it doesn't matter how he feels personally about Jesus. He's at the end of his rope because this is his daughter who's just died. And anybody who's had kids understands if your kids are sick, your kids are in, in serious danger, you are, are suffering for them. And he can't do anything for her because she's dead. There's nothing. He's probably tried everything he could. All the you know, doctors and medicine and whatever know how they've done. They probably tried it when she got sick. With It doesn't tell us how, what she was sick with, but she was either injured or sick or something that was serious. And so he probably was, was struggling with that and doing everything he could to help his daughter. And now she's dead. And as much as he hates to admit it, this rogue rabbi called Jesus who's been going around gathering this, this following of people has been doing things that nobody else can. And maybe this group of religious leaders hates the fact that he's got a bunch of followers, but hey, who else am I going to turn to? There's nobody in the synagogue that can help him. There's nobody at the temple that can help my daughter. Only Jesus, he's my only shot. And I know he can do these amazing things. And so this, this leader, this ruler, swallows his pride and goes to Jesus and he asks for help. And what does Jesus do? He just stands up and goes with him. Says, come on, disciples, let's go. And there's, there's no rubbing it in. There's no, I told you so. There's no, all right, now, Jairus, you owe me now. There's none of that. It's just in sincere compassion. Jesus stands up and follows the guy to his house to go help the daughter. Now, you know how much we revere people who run towards danger. You know, like the soldier who instead of running away from gunfire runs towards the gunfire. Like we honor that kind of valor and bravery. The, the, the emergency workers who run towards a fire or who run towards a flood or towards disasters and accidents and that kind of stuff. We honor those people because they put their lives on the line to help us when we're in need. And so we honor those people who run towards the danger instead of away from it. Jesus does the same thing. He runs towards pain. And he runs towards suffering. When the rest of us do everything we can do to avoid pain and suffering, Jesus walks right into it. God approaches and embraces the pain to help us the way a parent does. I mean, we, we often have sympathy for other people. If, if we see somebody who's in pain or in suffering, we feel sorry for them and we can get choked up. And I mean, we can really you know, feel for them. But how does it, how much does that motivate us to do something about it? To get in there and join somebody in their suffering? And, I mean, who here cries at movies? Any movie criers? A few of you willing to admit it? I, I, I never used to. Now it seems I tear up a whole lot more often than I ever did. I don't know if it's kids or, or my faith or what, but I, I usually try not to show it when I'm watching a movie and all of a sudden I get choked up because it's usually something really stupid, but... My, I remember the very first time, it was you know, and I never cried. You know, I get hurt. You you know, as a as a a boy growing up, you you rub some dirt in it and you walk it off and you pretend like nothing hurts you. But I was watching a movie called The Abyss, which is a sci-fi movie about people that are drilling for oil way down in the bottom of the ocean, and there's some Navy SEALs and a nuclear bomb and all sorts of stuff, and so they're you know underwater in this extreme environment. You know, a typical kind of guy movie and a woman there, there there's a, a man and a woman who are divorced 
but they're stuck in, they're trying to figure out this emergency situation and they're stuck in a, a submersible, a little submarine that's got a hole in it because there was a submarine crash up derby sort of thing and so theirs is leaking and there's one suit that they can wear to save it. So one person has to give their life and, and the, the ex-husband is saying, no, you put it on because you know, he, he's realizing he really cares about her even though they're divorced. They, he, he doesn't want her to die. He says, no, you put it on. And she says, no, you put it on because you're a better swimmer and you can haul me back to the station and you can revive me. And he fights it and fights it. So he puts on the suit and his wife drowns herself. And he's swimming back, dragging her body to the station. And then he gets back and he gets the crash cart and he's trying to you know, do CPR and all that kind of stuff and live, live. And it's you know, an emotional, tense scene. And I felt this something inside me like, Ooh, <laughs> what's going on? <laughs> And and I and there's the first movie that I felt that and you know it definitely wasn't a chick flick, but it was this tense scene. I felt that, and we do that. We we we're, we're when we see something. If you remember, oh, it was decades ago when Sally Struthers was on for Compassion Children, or you know when you see the starving kids in Africa, and you know doesn't it choke you up to see these poor kids starving to death? And we we watch things and we hear stories and movies and we we feel empathy for someone who gets hurt. I don't know about you, but you remember the America's Funniest Videos on TV and people will hurt themselves and everybody laughs and I cringe. You know, if somebody hurts themselves, I'm like, oh, I feel the pain for them. And we can do that. But it usually doesn't change our lives at all. Like we feel it. We feel the sympathy. We feel the empathy. But it doesn't really make a difference in how we live our lives. We will listen to somebody else's pain and we'll We'll, you know, we'll, we'll understand and we'll empathize with them because we've all been there. We've all been through it. So we feel sorry for what somebody's going through. But when we get back home, it's right back to normal life. It's not like we're doing something different because of somebody else's pain. Unless it's you know, a, a close somebody, like your, your kids or your spouse or something. And I think you know, almost all of us, hopefully all of us, would say that we believe in the Gospel. And say that it's important that we share our faith, that we tell other people about, the, the, about Jesus and how He can save your, your life and change your life from the inside out. But I, you know, I see plenty of open space in our pews. You know, if it's that important, if it really matters, then why aren't we doing everything that we can to get more people in here, to, to get the Gospel to our friends and our family and our loved ones and our co-workers and our you know, fellow whoever, our neighbors, so how, just how important is sharing the life-saving good news of Jesus Christ with the world compared to living our own lives and serving ourselves? Eating breakfast, lunch, and dinner and getting our sleep at night and watching TV or whatever it is that we do. When you really look at what we do and the importance of are we saving souls or are we just going through the motions? What, what does our life show? God's compassion is not like that. God's compassion is different. The, the compassion of Jesus, the word compassion in like the Old Testament Hebrew word for compassion is rahamim, which is the plural of womb. Like in a woman's, a mother's womb, that's where the word compassion comes from in the Hebrew, which is kind of weird to think about. But if you, if you think a little bit deeper, you think about, well, what is a womb doing for the baby? It's protection. It's a, a covering. It's a connection with the mother. There's, I mean, the baby, a, a, you know, as the, as the little tiny baby is developing, it's a very fragile thing. 
So a womb is like the best protection you can get. It's surrounded by fluid in there and, and you know, right next to the mom's body, so she's going to protect herself so she's gonna, and protect her kid. And, and it's a part of you. Like you're connected. There's a direct connection between mother and child. And so when God talks about compassion, it's this picture of, a, of how a mother has compassion for the baby in her womb, or at least ought to. And in J- uh, you, you've heard John fifteen five, where Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. And what does he say? He says, remain in me, abide in me, live connected to me. And, it, and so you can almost see that connection. When you think about compassion in a mother and a child, you can think about Jesus being the vine and us the branches. And it says, and the one who remains in me and I in him bears much fruit because apart from me you can accomplish nothing. And so it's this picture that we get our life and our strength and our protection from God, from Jesus. So God's compassion is, a, is this active protection and, and connection and relationship. And, and God is willing to do something about our brokenness. He doesn't just feel sorry for us. He's willing to, to come and suffer with us, to come and join us in our pain, in our brokenness, even in our sin, our, our sin and our most wretched rebellion and you know, turn our backs on Him, He's willing to come and touch us with His holiness instead of just letting us rot in our rebellion, which He could do, which a lot of us would do. You, know, you see the, the disgusting, dirty, homeless person on the street. Who goes over and gives that person a hug? And who walks on the other side? Like Jesus told the, the story of the Good Samaritan. The, the ruler, the religious ruler, wasn't looking to follow Jesus. He wasn't, you know, he didn't come to Jesus and said, I really want to learn from you and, and, and figure out what you're all about. He's just desperate because his daughter died. He's at the end of his rope. And, and obviously, he has some kind of faith in what Jesus can do. He's either heard the stories or seen the miracles that Jesus has done. So he, he has some kind of faith that, that Jesus can do something, or at least he hopes that Jesus can do something. But it's kind of a lousy and weak faith. He's not there to, to become a disciple or to learn and grow and to, to follow God. He's just there to try to save his kid or restore his kid. And Jesus doesn't, he doesn't say, no, wrong, try again. That's not good enough. Jesus meets the man at the point that, that the ruler is willing to simply humble himself and ask for help. Jesus, I, I, I don't know what to do. I need your help. Can you, can you come and restore my daughter? I've, I've heard the stories, I've seen what you can do, and I know I haven't thought very highly of you, but I know that if you will come and touch her, she'll be okay. And so he's got this, this tiny mustard seed of faith that he's willing to, to humble himself and go ask Jesus for help. And it, it reminds me a little bit, you've all seen the picture of the Sistine Chapel where the, you know, the man is, Adam is just kind of lounging and sitting back and kind of barely lifting up his hand. And here is God and his angels is reaching out and reaching to touch the finger of the man. And he's just laying there. He's just lounging and lifting up his finger and God's doing all the work to reach out to him. You've seen that picture. And that's, the, that's my picture. That's what I see, that kind of thing where here's Jairus, this religious ruler, and he's saying, I, I've done everything that I can 
And I'm just hoping that you'd be willing to come and, and do something. And Jesus gets up, let's go. Let's go to your house. Lead the way. God knows we can't save ourselves. He knows when you've sinned, you're dead in your sins. You, there's nothing you can do to, to restore your own life. And so He does all the heavy lifting for us. Ronan likes to help me carry things. My little two-year-old. He likes to, you know, I can pick that up. And of course he goes and he says, I can't. Can you do it? And so I'll pick up whatever it is, the heavy 50-pound whatever, and he's got his hand on it. Like he's doing half the work, or all the work. And, and he likes to imagine that he can do it. And we like to do it, think of that ourselves. We try to do everything we can for ourselves. And in our brokenness, when we get to that point where we finally admit, I can't, I can't lift it. I've tried. I've done what I can. And, and so in that state where we realize that we can't do it, God makes Himself known through Jesus. And He doesn't just give us an instruction book and say, okay, go figure it out. He says, follow Me and I'll show you the way. Walk with Me and I'll, I'll lead you through it. God doesn't just give us information. He gives us Himself. He comes and says, I will go with this through you, side by side. Though, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. And that makes all the difference. John 1.18 says, No one has ever seen God. The only one, Himself God, who is in closest fellowship with the Father has made God known. That's Jesus. That Jesus is God come in human form to let us know who He is and that He's here to, to help us. God put on flesh and he followed his own rules. It wasn't like he said, here's a bunch of rules, go do it. He came down and he, and he lived it. He went through. He said, this is how you do it. Let me demonstrate. Follow me. He's not a hypocrite. He's, he suffered for us. He intercedes for us. And he did it as one of us. Every step of the way. And it's the, I remember a, a story of a man who he was looking out his big window and winter, a winter storm was coming and he saw a bunch of birds out in his yard. And he thought, these birds are going to die. You know, this blizzard is going to come in and bury them all. And he says, I've got this nice warm barn. They can go in there and survive the storm and, and they'll be fine. And so he goes out and he opens his barn door and then he tries shooing the birds in. Let's go, birds. And they just keep fluttering all over the place because they're scared of this big scary man and they will not go in the barn. He tries everything he can to get them to go in there. And he thinks, if I could just transform myself into a bird... I could lead them in because they wouldn't be scared of me. And that's, the, that's like a picture of God. That if I could just transform myself into a human, I could lead them. And that's what He does because God's the only one who can do that kind of thing. And so, God has reached down into our mess, into our sin and our brokenness to embrace us in our, in our sinfulness, in our wretchedness, to, and, and to become one of us to reconcile us back to Himself. To win us back to the way He always intended us for us to be. And the, and the climax of that is found at the cross. But we see it throughout Jesus' life. It doesn't start at the cross. It starts the day He's born. The Creator became a creature, which is just kind of mind-boggling, it, you know, the Bible says he's unchanging and he, dis, and he becomes something brand new. He, be, uh, he becomes a human being for our sakes to save us, which is just uh, amazing to think about. And instead of 
you know, leaving us to, to rot in our own wretchedness, he, he moves towards our pain and towards our suffering and joins us in our pain and our suffering. He joins us in our world that's broken by sin. And he lives through it and he grows up in it and, and he suffers and he watches and he sees and, and, he, and his compassion isn't just a feeling. It isn't just tearing up because he hears a sad story. It's an action where he says, let's go. I'm, I'm going to go with you and I'm going to help you through this. I'll be with, I'm going to follow you. Take me to your house. I'm going to do what... It's his compassion moves him into action. In Hebrews 4, at verse 14, it says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest incapable of sympathizing with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us confidently approach the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace whenever we need help. So, Jesus has lived the life that He's calling us to live. And He has felt all the, the, the pains. He's felt all the, the, the temptations that life can throw at us. And yet, He's done what we should do. He's done the right thing and always chosen to, to, to follow God and to trust in Him. So, Jesus moves towards us. He, he moves towards the most unwanted and the least desired and the, and the dirty and the broken, and the diseased, and the dead. He moves towards those who hate Him and want to kill Him so that we can be cleansed and so that we can move towards God. So He comes to us in our mess and in our brokenness so that we can then be made alive and able to move to God and have a relationship with Him. If you think about the Jewish laws, the, the Old Testament says you're not allowed to touch a dead body or else you become unclean. You, and then you have to go through the whole ritual process to cleanse yourself again to, to be able to you know, rejoin communities. And so for him to go and have anything to do with a dead girl would make him ceremonially unclean. Is he scared of that? No. He doesn't care. He says, let's go. Let's go help her out. And, and we heard, we'll get into it, but the story of the, the woman with the issue of blood. To touch a woman who's got this, this bleeding problem, this discharge, that would make him unclean. Is he scared of that? No, he moves towards it. He, he, Jesus is willing to approach our uncleanness and do something to help. When the man, the ruler, comes and he asks Jesus to, can you, you know, I know if you would touch my daughter, he gets up and he goes and he moves towards the death and towards the suffering. And uh, the next verse talks about the woman. He's, so he's gotten up. The man, the ruler says, hey, can you help me? And he gets up to go help him. And along the way, this woman intercepts him in verse 20. But a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. For she kept saying to herself, if only I touch his cloak, I will be healed. As a Jew, she was completely unclean ceremonially she was disconnected from society because she's been having this issue for 12 years and there's nothing she can do about it i'm sure she's talked to everybody she can if there's any way to solve this problem and and they can't and so she's disconnected from society she's unable to worship she's unable to participate in the community this would have been rough on her family i don't know it doesn't say if she's a mom or or, or has a, a husband 
but she would have been heartbroken dealing with this. Year after year, hoping and praying that, that God, will you stop this? Will you heal me so that I can reconnect with my family and my loved ones? Can you imagine the anguish and the depression and the anger? Why is this? God, where are you? Why is this happening to me? I just want to be close to someone again. And, and her faith, I know we look at this and she's, oh, she's got the faith to go ch- touch Jesus. But if you, you know, when I think about it, it doesn't seem like her faith was the best either. It's almost like a superstition. Like she is so broken and so worn down and, and her confidence is so wiped out after 12 years of praying and nothing happening. She doesn't even have the courage to ask Jesus out loud for help. She thinks, I'm not even going to bother interrupting him. Just, if I can just touch his robe, that'll do the trick. And you can bet that physically it took a whole lot more energy for her to, to work her way through the throng of people that were surrounding Jesus to, to go and touch him rather than just to stand in his path and ask out loud and just say, Jesus, I've got this bleeding problem which would have to admit her that she's unclean. Will you help me? But mentally, she was too afraid to expose her weakness and her uncleanness to the crowd. So it's, it's like her, her faith, she knew that Jesus could do something, but it wasn't strong enough to say, Jesus, I'm broken, can you help me? And so it seems like both of these people's, the, the ruler and the woman's faith, are, they've got faith, they've got trust that Jesus can do something, but it's a weak faith. And yet, at the same time, it gets the job done. It leads to, to healing and new life. Not because of their own strength, not because they were these paragons of faith, but because of who they put their faith in. And that they were willing to humble themselves and just do whatever they were, whatever they were able. Maybe they weren't willing to, you know, for the ruler to go say, Jesus, I, I trust in you. I'm going to follow you, whatever. No, he said, I, I've done everything else and I can't do anything by myself. Will you help me? It's at that brokenness and that humility that Jesus helps. And the woman, I, I can't do anything. I've tried, I've prayed. I'm not even going to bother asking. I'm just going to try and touch. And that was enough. And so she, and it, and it works. She touches Jesus' robe and gets healed. And Jesus feels it. Of course. I imagine every time he heals somebody, he feels it. But he's in this crowd of people and something's going on and, and he, somebody touches him without him seeing it. And he knows it. He knows that the healing has gone out. And he turns around to look at her. And in, verse, or in Matthew, it just tells us that, that he turns around and looks at her. In Luke, it gives us a little more information. It says, Jesus asked in Luke 8.45, Who was it that touched me? And there's a whole crowd of people. And it says, When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds are surrounding you and pressing against you. What do you mean, who touched you? Everybody's touched you. There's, there's 50, 60, 70 people around and they've all been clamoring to touch you. What are you talking about? Who touched me? Who hasn't touched you, Jesus? And certainly there were people there for all kinds of reasons. People who just wanted to meet Jesus because they heard about Him. People, you know, some were surely there for selfish reasons. Some wanted to see a, if Jesus do a miracle. Some wanted to, to hear Him teach. Some wanted to, to you know, talk about what he'd gone through but of all the people and surely there were lots and lots of people that were touching him because they're all peter says they're all pressing in there were lots of people that were touching him 
out of that whole crowd and all the touches that Jesus got, he noticed one. One person in this throng of people who touched him stuck out. And he didn't even see it at first. He felt it. One person whose faith was different than everybody else in the crowd. And sure, it was weak and it was broken, but that's what made the difference. That one woman. And weak as it may have been, how much faith does Jesus say it takes to move a mountain? A mustard seed. If you've got, if, if your faith is this small, that's okay as long as it's real. If your faith is real, it doesn't matter how big it is. If you've got it this much and you're willing enough to, to humble yourself and come to Jesus and say, God, I need your help. I'm at the end of my rope. There's nothing I can do. I've done everything and I realize I, I'm going to die without you. I cannot go on without you. Jesus, please help me. When you're willing to do that, that's what makes the difference. And verse 47 says, when the woman's it, back in, uh, it, in Luke again, when the woman saw that she could not escape notice, she came trembling and fell down before him. And in the presence of all the people, she explained why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And she'd been outed because Jesus turned around and he looked at her. Who touched me? And everybody in the crowd is saying, what are you talking about? I didn't touch you. He says, I felt something. Who touched me? And finally she had to admit it was me. And, if the, and if the, before this, if the crowd had known about her, if they had known that she had this bleeding issue and that she was ceremonially unclean and that they had touched her because she's been pushing through this, this pressing crowd to get to Jesus, and so she surely touched a whole bunch of other people along the way. If they found out that this woman with the issue of blood has touched them, they would be ticked off because now you've made me unclean. What have you been doing? And if they'd known that, they would have been clamoring to get away from it or shouting at her to back off. Get away from here, you unclean lady. Get away from us. But at this point, she doesn't care anymore. Because what's happened? It stopped. As soon as she touched him, she felt it too. And she knew that her bleeding had stopped. And she was healed. And she was whole. And now it didn't matter. I don't care who knows now. My life has been changed. I, I don't care what people think. I can go home now. I can be whole again. I can, I can live with my family again. I can love, and I don't know if she has kids, but I can love and hug my children. I can go to the temple and not have people despise me every time I get close to them. My life is different. It was me, God, and you've made me whole. Thank you. That's the reaction of someone who's been saved from death. It, it, when you've been spared from hell and your life has been changed from the inside out and you know it, then it doesn't matter what other people think. I have God now. Who cares what the world thinks of me? Let them think that I'm a Jesus freak or a religious nut. It doesn't matter to me. I'm going to keep talking about Jesus and I don't care if they think I'm crazy because I've been set free from my sins. I've been made new. I've got life again. I was dead and now I'm alive. I have a relationship with God because the blood of Jesus has saved me. Let them think I'm a crazy person. I'm going to keep talking about them. When somebody who's been really made new, that's what they think. I, Jesus, you alone have the words of life. I'm going to follow you. That's all I care about. And back in Matthew, um, in verse 22, it says, but when Jesus turned and saw her, he said, have courage, daughter. Your faith has made you well. 
And the woman was healed from that hour. And this is a great feel-good story. I mean, this poor lady who's been suffering for 12 years, and we, we like to see that she's been made well, and she's okay, and she can go back home, and, and her life can be different. But it seems like there's a part of this story that we don't ever really take notice of. What does it cost Jesus to heal us? Like, does it, does it, he felt it. He felt something. He knew that the power went out. And I know that there's a quote from John Calvin. I know a few of you might not like John Calvin, but he says this is a really interesting line. He says, from the moment that Jesus assumed flesh, he began to pay the price of our liberation. And in the, in the last chapter, when the man was healed from leprosy, in, in uh, Matthew chapter 8, in verse 17, it says, In this way, what was spoken by Isaiah the prophet was fulfilled. He took our weaknesses and carried our diseases. And it's like Jesus is, it's like he's trading life for death. It's like he's giving us health and taking our sicknesses and, and absorbing that. And I don't know what it felt like for Jesus to heal people. Like if he hurt when he, but I know that just looking at a world that's broken and watching people suffer and watching people die broke his heart. I mean, that's why Jesus came. Because watching the world fall apart broke God's heart. And it hurts him to see people suffer. It hurts him to see people lost in their sins. These are his children. When you parents look at your kids suffer, it hurts you. And so it hurt God. And so Jesus walking around in the broken world and seeing so much suffering and so much death and so much pain surely broke his heart every day to look around at the world of fighting and, and, and gossip and backstabbing and lying and cheating and, and adultery and sexual sins. and I mean, all of it probably just tore him up inside. And to think, you know, when he went to heal Lazarus, to bring Lazarus back from the dead, it says he wept because here's his friend who had died. Sure, he has the power to heal people and he has the power to bring him back from the dead. That doesn't mean that he doesn't hurt inside when it happens. And, and he grew up in this, this world, this broken world. He felt the pain and the suffering that we all encounter in life. Surely he lost people that he loved. He knew what it was like to, to be poor. He grew up in a poor family because when they offered sacrifices, it was the doves instead of a lamb because that's all his family could afford. So he surely he felt hungry. He felt tired. He, he felt stressed out at times, overwhelmed, humiliated, the, and the ultimate fulfillment of his mission came at the cross where the pain was the most intense probably. But it began on the day he was conceived and he went through life just like you and I with all the pain and suffering and watching all the pain and suffering around him. And, it, and he, so he felt every tick-tock along the way. He knew the, the, what he had come to do and, and how much it hurt just to, to watch the people that he cared about suffer so much. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, says, God made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we would become the righteousness of God. Jesus never sinned himself. He, he always did what was right and never did what was wrong. He never chose to reject God like we have done in our past. And so God, so Jesus never, his, his relationship with the Father was always perfect. And yet he experienced the effects of sin in this world. He watched people suffer and die. He, he, I don't know if he, I'm sure as a kid he fell down and skinned his knees and you know, he felt pain as you know, growing up and, and growing pains that kids go through. And, and, he, 
and and definitely when he went through the the humiliation and torture of the cross, he suffered more than any of us have ever suffered. But, you know, we think about what we go through. At least you and I deserve to die for our sins. I mean, we can we should be willing to admit that. I've sinned against God. I deserve the death penalty. Jesus didn't deserve any of it. He didn't he never sinned. And every day of his life, he could look around and see and feel the brokenness in this world. And he willingly accepted it. He volunteered to go on this mission. And he absorbed it. He stepped in front of the bullet meant for you and I. And he said, I'll take it. And so that we might be given restoration and new life. And from the way he talks about this woman, it seems like when he healed a person, it's like he exchanged a piece of himself for the brokenness of somebody else. He felt it when the healing went out from him. And I, and I don't know what that you know, physical feeling experience of that was, but I know emotionally at least that the, well, I can only imagine the kind of weight that he carried through his life, the burden that it was for him to live amongst all these broken and hurting people who were, uh, who were hurting themselves and one another with sin and suffering through the, just the, the brokenness in the world that has physical pain and suffering and and it was on Jesus every time he looked around and he saw the people around him who were hurting. And that burden, I think, is what motivated him to keep going towards the cross. That, that weight and seeing people suffering all around him kept him moving towards his goal of becoming the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And, he, and all along the way, he says, let me take your pain. You take my yoke, I'll take yours. Take my yoke upon you because it's light. I'll take yours. I'll take your sin. I'll take your, your, your suffering and I'll carry it to the cross and then I'll bury it with me in the tomb where it belongs. And let's leave it there. You take my yoke. You live the life that you've been called to. I'll take your brokenness, your pain, your suffering, and I'll get rid of it for you. I bet most, if not all, of the parents in here would gladly absorb the suffering of their own children if they could. When you watch your kid who's sick and suffering, you think, man, I would, if, I could, if I could take that away from you, I would rather suffer and let you live the life without that pain. And you understand that as a parent. And that's what God did for you and me. He looked at us and saw the pain and the suffering, even though we caused it ourselves, a lot of it, through the sin, but he saw what we were going through. And he said, let me take it. And I'll take your suffering." And, and God's compassion for us isn't just an emotional response. It's an active response of a parent who loves their child and will do whatever they can to help. And it costs him to, to, to come and, and meet us in our brokenness and our suffering. I believe that when we suffer it, I think that when we suffer, you know, even like the physical things that we go through and, and the sickness and the death of a loved one and things like that, I believe that it hurts God more than it hurts us. Because we, God knows what life could be like without sin and death. When He created the world and finished creation, He looked out and what did He say? It's very good. Everything was perfect the way it was supposed to be. And He saw it the way He meant for it. And then it got broken and destroyed. You and I have grown up in a broken world. There, yeah, there's beauty and there's wonderful things that we can see, but we've always had pain and death and suffering around us. And 
If you have never lived on a tropical island, then being surrounded by the cornfields and the soybean fields of Illinois, that's just normal life. And it's like, yeah, a tropical island would be cool, but if you've never actually been there, you know, you don't really know what you're missing. But when you have lived in Southern California, like I have, right next to the beach, and when you've lived in the Caribbean, when you've lived in the South Pacific, and I have lived in all those places, then you know what it means to truly miss the ocean. When you drive by cornfields and soybeans every day, and you think, gosh, I wish I could go to the beach. I've lived there. I know what I'm missing. But when you've grown up and this is all you've ever known, you don't quite miss it as much. I mean, sure, it would be cool to go on a vacation, but it's not like when you've actually lived there. God lived in perfect. He, he created it, and it was wonderful, and it was great. And then it was broken. And imagine how much more it hurts him. I know what it could be like. I know what your life could be like. We've always had the suffering. We're used to it. And God's saying, oh, I wish that you could know what it would be like to live a whole and healed life. So when we pray for God to heal us or take away our suffering, and he says no, for whatever reason, and I think most of the time he says no because in the scheme of things, there's a greater good that, he, that can come out of it because he promises, I, I promise to cause all things to work together for your good. So when God says no to us, when we're calling out for you know, God help me, please take away this suffering like Paul did. He says, three times I cried out for God to heal me and he said, no. I think when, he, when God says no or not yet, that I, I think it hurts him to say it. I think it pains him to say no and not yet. When you, if you've ever had young kids who were sick and they had to get a shot and you had to hold your little child so that the doctor could stick a needle into them, it hurts you to have to hold your child so the doctor could stab them. But you knew it was for their own good. You knew it they were doing that so that they could be healed. But it still hurts you. You know, if they had to get sutures or whatever it is, and you had to, to keep them from moving, I know this hurts and I'm so sorry, but it's going to help you. I think that's what God is like. When, he tells, when, when we say, God, please help me. Please heal me. And He says, no, not yet. I know it hurts, but please just hold on. This is going to work out okay in the end. I believe that it hurts God more than it hurts us to say no. And, and so Jesus, when he lived his life, he wasn't just passing time until his appointment with the cross. He was demonstrating what we were working towards, what the kingdom of God is supposed to look like, what reconciliation is with our relationship. He was, Jesus was demonstrating through his healing and through his teaching and through what everything he did, he was showing this is what life is supposed to be like. When he, he, when he brought someone back from the dead, when He healed somebody from sickness, this is what the kingdom is supposed to be like. It's supposed to be new life and restoration. And from the moment He was born until the moment He died, He took our suffering. He felt our pain in order to set us free. Matthew, back in Matthew 9, verse 23, it says, when Jesus entered the ruler's house, so He, he, dealt, he finished with the woman, and then he went on his way to continue what he had started to go to the ruler's house to heal the girl. When he, when he entered the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the disorderly crowd, who were all the, like the funeral mourners who were there, he said, go away for the girl is not dead but asleep. And they began making fun of him. All these people who were supposed to be mourning the loss of this girl are now making fun of Jesus. Have you ever been laughed at like that? Ever been the, the center of, a, of mocking? If you've went to middle school, you probably have at least a picture of what that's like. We've all been in times when people 
laughter. And it's not easy. It's not easy to be the object of other people's mockery. Especially when you're getting abused for trying to do the right thing. When you're standing up for the right reasons and everybody's making fun of you, that's not easy. When you're telling people the way God calls us to live and they're all mocking you for it. And Jesus was living in the weakness of human flesh with the, the lack of power and ability that we have and, and He was depending on the Spirit. He was trusting in, in God. He was fighting to keep focus on righteousness. And in a, you know, amidst the mockery, amidst all the, the, the trouble that He dealt with, and He was determined to never give up. I'm sure it was never easy for Him. I'm sure it was work every single day to stay on the right path. It wasn't like, you know, I'm Jesus and I don't it just you know, water off a duck's back. It doesn't matter if people... No, I'm sure it hurt Him every time somebody mocked Him. Every time somebody challenged Him. Every time they, they, they went up against Him. I'm sure that it was hard. And it hurt. And yet He was determined. And He was fighting. And He was pushing to make it to the, His goal of conquering sin and death and to stay on that path. And I hear so many people talk about how you know, they, they struggle with sin or they struggle with addiction. And you've probably heard that. You know, I struggle with fill in the blank, with this or that. And so much of the time, it doesn't look like they're struggling at all. What it looks like is that they're just giving up and giving in to temptation and not really struggling. And then they're feeling sorry for themselves because they did what they knew was wrong and now they're hurting for it. If they were struggling, truly fighting, then they would be calling upon God and running to flee from the temptation and doing whatever they could to stay away from the garbage and the sin and fighting to do what was right. Jesus struggled with sin. And He won because He struggled against it. He fought against it. and He did what was right. Why? Because He trusted in the Father. And He never gave up fighting. And we all have the exact same opportunity. And the promise from God that a victory that with every temptation I'll give you a way out. You call on me and I will be there to help you. And you can win every struggle. If you struggle, I will be there struggling with you and you can win because Jesus already won. He beat sin and death for us. He went to the cross. He conquered us. He conquered death. He conquered sin. And He says you can have that. And if we will trust in Him and follow Him and never give up fighting, then we can win too. And that's a promise from God. If you walk with me and you struggle, I will get you through this. We just have to want it enough to choose the struggle. To choose the difficult and the narrow path of actually struggling for what's good instead of taking the easy way, the wide way of giving in and giving up to what we know is wrong. Do you really struggle? Jesus wasn't swayed from His compassion even though it was a fight. And once again, his healing power goes out to the daughter of his, maybe his enemy. And, and he's surrounded by mockers. These people in the crowd are laughing at him. And he's in the house of, of the class of people who were against him, the religious leaders. And he says, you know, forget him. Send him out. I'm going to help you. In verse 25, but when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and gently took her by the hand and the girl got up. And the news of this spread throughout the region. Jesus doesn't just identify with us you know he does he doesn't just participate in life with us he does that but he comes to make things new he comes to transform us to and and that's the key to victorious living if you want to have victory over sin and victory over evil 
then you've got to be transformed from the inside out by Jesus. None of us, without Jesus, none of us can make it. The point of Matthew telling us this story isn't just to, to resuscitate, you know, here's a neat story about a girl that got, you know, brought back from the dead or, or a, a lady that got healed from bleeding. It's about pointing us to the redemption of God, to the power that changes lives and makes things new. That God bring, that He came to restore humanity. It's about God meeting us at our worst, at our, our most helpless, and making the clean, making the unclean clean, making the dead alive, overcoming death and, and offering new life. And Jesus is giving himself completely every day for us so that we might be transformed to become like him. He's giving up himself so that we might become more like him. I don't know about you, but I have plenty of issues in my life. I, I, I don't always respond well when my kids are naughty. I don't always show understanding with my wife. I get overwhelmed and stressed out from the work that needs to get done. And, you know, when we, when our, we have our grocery bill is too high and I have to figure out how to rob for Peter to pay Paul to feed our kids. And then there's the weekly deadline trying to get ready every Sunday to pray, and praying to God that I can offer something of use to you and to the kingdom and, you know, I go and I visit people in the hospital or the nursing home or the, the, the jails or the funeral parlors and I hurt for them and I feel like nothing I'm saying is really doing any good. And I struggle with that and I, and I never feel like I have that much to do that I can help and I pray that I don't screw it all up. I'm trying to be a good example for my kids and I, I'm, I'm full of issues and I mess up all the time and, and I'm sure that if I asked you, if we were all honest, that we all have issues. Wouldn't it be nice if we could just touch the fringe of Jesus' cloak and have all our issues washed away? Wouldn't that be great? But faith isn't about just having all your problems solved and getting a ticket to heaven. That's not what a relationship with God. It's about choosing to follow Jesus. It's about the, the, you know, your, the best and most joyful and most fulfilling life comes from walking with God regardless of the circumstances. And Jesus invites us to do that when He says, follow Me. True belief is not mental. True belief, it's like real compassion. Real compassion isn't just feeling sorry for somebody. It's action. It's doing something about it. It's walking with Jesus to love God by loving our neighbors. When we see, hey, you're going to die in your sins, let me tell you about Jesus. And that's what communing is. That's what communing with God. Jesus came that we might know His forgiveness so that we could commune with Him. Jesus invites us to abide with Him. Abide in Me. I'm the vine and you're the branches. To follow Him. To take His yoke. To feel. To, to know His compassion and to share it with other people in the midst of our life in this broken world. And He invites us to be transformed through His victory on the cross and resurrection. His victory over sin and death so that we can be forgiven, receive new life, be transformed from the inside out, and walk with Him in a relationship. That's what faith is about. So if you'll put your faith in Jesus, even if it's weak, even if it's not the, the, the best, if you're willing to turn away from your sin and humble yourself and follow Him and say, I, I can't do it without you, Jesus. I need you. Please help me. Then the Bible says He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and give us new life. Of course, we still live in a broken world, 
But that gives us the opportunity to reach out with the, with the good news to other people who are also broken, who can be transformed and made new with the time that we have left. And one day, all those people that we've talked to, we get to celebrate with. One day, when God makes all things new, then our bodies will finally match up with our surroundings, with our soul, and we can have you know, new bodies and live in a new world and everything will be great. But in the meantime, at least your heart can be made new. At least your life on the inside can be made new. And, and that can be good and you can have a relationship. The question is, do you want that? Do you want the path of struggle? Do you want to take the hard way? Do you want to follow Jesus even though he's walking into the pain and walking into the suffering? If you do, then ask God and he'll forgive you and he'll give you a new life. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you're willing to come and walk into the mess of our lives and make us new. And we thank you that in the midst of our pain in a broken world, that you're willing to, to be with us and to, and to walk with us through it. So God, I pray that you would help us to see your presence and to know your, your love and to know your compassion in our lives and that we could continue to trust in you even when things are hard and difficult. And just like you looked around and felt the suffering and the pain of the world around you and endured it, help us to endure it and to share your good news with others and help us to look forward to that day when all things will be made new and our surroundings can match up with our souls. God, we love you, and we thank you that you did everything you could in order to save us and to make us new. Help our lives to be transformed and to share that transformation with other people so that they can be transformed by your grace too. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.